Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, good friends. It's Friday, March 17, St. Patrick's Day, and time for our weekly Reporters Roundtable. Welcome. Top of the morning to you. Well, it's only March 2023, but this week it seemed like we were already in the middle of the 2024 primary. On the political front, Mike Pence blamed Donald Trump for January 6, and Trump fired back by blaming him. Ron DeSantis campaigned in Iowa, and Trump filed an ethics complaint against him for (laughs) for campaigning without having announced. Senate Republicans dump all over Ron DeSantis for siding with Vladimir Putin in Ukraine. And former Trump fixer Michael Cohen told a New York grand jury that he made hush payments to Stormy Daniels on orders from Trump for which Trump reimbursed him. Meanwhile, America narrowly escaped a catastrophic banking crisis. Or have we? (laughs) What a crazy week. Here today to help us make some sense of it all, our all Irish panel, <laughs> Jason Jason Dick, editor in chief of CQ Roll Call and host of the Political Theater podcast. Hi, Jason. Good morning, Bill. Uh, Lynn Sweet, columnist and Washington bureau chief for the Chicago Sun Times, joining us for the first time on the Bill Press Roundtable. Hi, Lynn. Hi, Bill. Good morning, everyone. And Gabe De Benedetti, national correspondent for New York Magazine. Hello, Gabe. Morning, Bill. So, Gabe, let me start with you. This is the week when the other shoe was going to drop in New York. Alvin Bragg, we've all been waiting. What happened? How many shoes are there, Bill? I mean, we've been <laughs> waiting for the other shoe to drop on uh, Trump for, what, five, six years now? Uh, listen, I, there has been this like promise of liberal deliverance on on all sorts of legal fronts for Trump for a very long time. It is true that it did seem very likely that an indictment was coming this week. Obviously, it has not happened yet. Uh, we're recording this on Friday morning, so TBD. Um, I think that, uh, you know, we will – there's no question that there's a lot of uh, legal shoes to drop in the coming weeks, not just in Manhattan. We have, of course, the grand jury in Atlanta that we know was was operating for a long time there and has finished up its work. Um you know, I don't know anything about the timing. I don't think anyone knows anything about the timing except for a few judges and you know uh, folks of that of those stripes. Um, you know, legal folks, we should say. Uh, it does seem very clear, though, that that something is about to happen that will change the conversation politically, at least, certainly legally around Trump. Um, you know, indicted former president running for president does seem to be the likely outcome that we're going to see in the coming few weeks. Yeah. Um, and so, Lynn, we if we don't know for sure if there's going to be indictment, we kind of know for sure about the facts of the case. Here is Trump's former attorney, Michael Cohen, uh, of course, who's been uh, in front of Congress and testified. I think he even went to prison for a while because of 
uh, his involvement with Trump and the lies that he told Congress. Here is Michael Cohen again about the Stormy Daniels case. They know that there's documentary evidence. They know there's emails, text messages. There's a whole slew of information that corroborates every single statement that I made. So, Lynn, that sounds like um, an indictment for sure, doesn't it? No, it sounds like Michael Cohen for sure knows what he has. <laughs> so we've known that Michael Cohen for years now, once the loyal acolyte, has been willing to dump all over the man who he once defended, even paid money to somebody who seemed to be having some sexual encounter with Trump. So he's been playing this song for a long time now. If it's not so easy to convict somebody on these kinds of charges. It's taken years to get as far as we have. It's amazing this case is still alive and it's been kept alive. To my panel, I say this is one of many legal controversies swirling around Trump. And it will be, a, I'll have a sense of irony if this is the one that lands the first indictment. You know, it's mm -hmm. kind of like sending Capone away on income tax evasion. Yeah. <laughs> you can't get to the larger alleged crimes, so you, you, you indict, you use what you have. Yeah. So, Jason, uh, Trump keeps coming up with these attorneys. I don't know where he finds them, right? So Rudy Giuliani is out of the picture. Now we've got this guy, Joe Tacopino, Joe Tacopina, who said, told the New York Times yesterday, or no, this was on MSNBC, he said, if they bring this case, it will catapult Donald Trump into the White House. <laughs> I'm, I'm imagining sort of the, the Monty Python skit, the fling, you know, where they like would throw the cows uh, over over the over the castle keep. This will do um, it. This will do it. This will just uh, just have John Cleese and you know, like Eric Idle, you know, flinging Trump over the White House grounds. Um, that's an image I probably didn't need at this point in the morning without coffee. Um, no, it, it does. It's, I also don't know where they get these lawyers, although having lived in, in a lot of small towns, uh, even small towns have, you know, these, these different lawyers who come on local television stations and, you know, ask if you've been in an accident or, you know, and, and, something and, and, you know, and promise justice. A lot of them have, uh, you know, eagles, uh, in the, in their advertising to, to make sure that everybody knows it's an American thing. Um, it, it does seem, though, that like there, I've I've been amused that there's been a lot of press about people like Sidney Powell and and so forth. The, you know the 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 string of lawyers that he's used in the past and how you know they've been sort of chewed up uh, through the you know through the Trump adventure uh, and now he's on these new ones. And so maybe in a couple of years, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see Joe. And I'm not I I I can't remember. I, it's it's kind of like D Day. You try not to get to know too many people too close because you know they just won't be there for very long. Um, so, so uh, yeah, it, it, it is, it does seem like there will always be somebody there though uh, to, uh, to represent Trump, even though they may not get paid. But the question, Gabe, is will, if there is an indictment, will it help or hurt Donald Trump's campaign? Uh, well, he'll certainly try and use it uh, for political purposes. There's no doubt. You know, the deep state prosecutors are coming after me. The government is aligning against me. This is crony Biden is, you know, Biden's cronies. But but let's not pretend that this is some sort of 3D chess. I mean, this is very, very simple politics and extremely simple politics coming from Trump. Like, you know, we have for many years now, and I think we've talked about this bill, 
uh, assumed that Trump has this ability to turn every bad story into a good thing. He'll be able to rally his base around it. He can rally his base around everything. That's the whole point of the Trump base. I mean, it's it's really would would be saying quite a lot about our politics, which maybe is a fair thing to say, to say it's actually good for Trump to get indicted. You know, I don't think we can go that far. I think a much bigger question, a much more interesting question, honestly, is what this does to the rest of the Republican primary field, yeah. which is starting yeah. to shape up now, because how do they talk about this? You could right. totally see a world where a lot of them do feel that that in some sense they have to come to Trump's defense. And it's very un- uncomfortable for a lot of them, obviously. A lot of them wouldn't feel comfortable doing that. But if you are going for that Trump base that is sort of reflexively uh, behind him and believes his sort of conspiracies about uh, the deep state in particular or or a government um, aligned against him or an elite aligned against him, which, you know, we, we all know is not really true in the terms that he talks about it, especially not the legal establishment. Um, you know that could put some of them in a very interesting position, and it will in, indeed shape that uh, that party's debate pretty significantly. Well, they may have to take sides on that issue, and here's another issue on which they may have to take sides. Uh, Lynn, let me turn to you. Thanks to you, uh, a good friend. I once attended. I've attended several, but one time attended the Gridiron Dinner as your guest, um, and so you were there the other night when Mike Pence dropped a bomb blaming Donald Trump. Pretty in pretty strong terms for endangering his family on January 6th. Were you surprised uh, at a dinner, which is usually all in good sport with a lot of good one-liners, humorous one-liners? Were you surprised when Donald, uh, when Mike Pence rather, um, shifted gears and went into the dark side? I was surprised at the level and the depth that he went into in attacking Donald Trump and also defending the press and also attacking Fox News' Tucker Carlson. So the uh, the old Mike Pence, Mike Pence spoke, was the main speaker at the 2017 Gridiron Dinner. So he's familiar with this, uh, this dinner, white tie, gowns, uh, night of skits. So he knew, though, that he was speaking to an audience of political reporters who would be covering his campaign or analyzing it. So I wasn't surprised that he was going, I figured he would say what he had been saying January 6th happened. He had no choice, but it was the level that he went to in criticizing that Trump that made the big news from his speech. Uh, And Jason, it looks like that Mike Pence has decided maybe he has no other way to go, that this is his lane for 2024. As Lynn indicated, Pence has said this before, most recently, uh, in an interview with ABC's David Muir. But the president's words were reckless, and his actions were reckless. The president's words that day at the rally endangered me and my family and everyone at the Capitol building. Yeah, I, I I agree, Bill. I mean, it's 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 a narrow lane, and it's not likely to um, necessarily get him the nomination. I mean, his polling numbers are not uh, not kind of keeping pace at all, and never have with with Trump or with uh, Ron DeSantis. But I mean, this this may just be the the way that he sees like he's going to kind of set the record straight. I mean, I, I, to be cynical, what else does he have to do? Um, I mean, <laughs> we, uh, I mean, there's there's fade into history and obscurity, or there's you know, say like, no, this this happened, and this was the, this is the way it is, and I'm not going to, and and to try to at least partially wrest a little bit of the narrative away from the likes of Tucker Carlson. 
Right. So, Gabe, back to your point about uh, what happens among other Republicans if Trump were indicted, right? Mike Pence seemed to be saying for Republicans that you gotta, you gotta be, you know, uh, you have to be willing to say that January six was a total outrage and attack on the Capitol, or you have to defend Donald Trump. You can't be in the middle. Yeah, I think Pence's position here is actually a little bit more interesting than people are giving it credit for, uh, which doesn't necessarily mean anything good for him. But I think we have to remember that when he decided to stay on the ticket um, in October of 2016, after that Access Hollywood tape came out, you know, there was a lot of pretty good reporting at the time that suggested you know he was more or less making the calculus. I don't think he ever said this explicitly, certainly never said it explicitly out loud, but he was making the calculus that though he did not agree with Trump, you know, this was an ends justify the means kind of thing, not only for conservative priorities that, that Pence certainly believed in, um, but, but also because of his own political future. There was a pretty clear bet for Pence that he could disagree with Trump on X, Y, and Z, well, probably A through Z, really, um, but that the idea was he would then be the person associated with Trumpism, but also be able to you know, use his evangelical ties, use his long history of conservatism, and eventually reach the White House himself. You know, To some degree, every vice president makes a bet kind of like that, but it was vastly more um, complicated or at least you know, riskier for Pence. Pretty clearly, uh, you know, he has had a tough last few years with the realization um, that he will be remembered not for standing up to Trump, but for abetting Trump and for doing everything for Trump, for in many ways making Trump's life a lot easier. So, yeah, obviously he wants to be the president now. I mean, we shouldn't – it's not cynical to say that. He, he clearly is trying to run in 2024 and he clearly is trying to set the terms of debate. Um if we look at it from his perspective, you know, it's important that he – it is interesting and important that he is trying to make this pivot now. Um, I don't know if Pence is going to be successful in setting the terms of debate though for the rest of the party. I mean the fact of January 6th was always going to be front and center simply because – People were going to ask every single one of these uh, competitors about it. Trump was not going to stop talking about it. He's in legal jeopardy because of it. Um, but the reality is that the people who are who are shaping the 2024 debate for right now are not Mike Pence, who polls at you know approximately the same as I do in Republican primaries. <laughs> um, I'm being not really fair to him, but you know it's it's Trump and it's DeSantis. Um, those are the people who who have so far been able to provoke the rest of the field into saying something. Um, obviously, that could change. Mike Pence is a former vice president, and that does carry with it some institutional heft. Um, but that's about where you get. Um, that's about as far as it's gotten so far. Uh, so and to Gabe's point, Bill, I, I yeah. just wanted to say too that, like the regardless of the mess of impeachments and you know just all the craziness of the Trump years, I mean the the country is noticeably different. It's it, the the policies are still very conservative. You know, the Roe versus Wade was overturned. I mean, like they they got you know Pence, you know was a part of a an administration that fundamentally changed a lot of our policy and politics regardless of the way it was delivered they they got what they wanted they wanted Roe versus Wade overturned they wanted lower taxes i mean this is i mean regard, regardless of how they got there they did deliver on what they would have wanted under any republican president so uh, there seems to be a theme of issues <laughs> dividing Republicans or Republicans forced to to take a stand one way or the other. Uh, Lynn, that is also true now on the issue of Ukraine. Tucker Carlson laid out what Ron DeSantis believes about 
Ukraine. DeSantis is adamantly opposed to the position that most Republicans in Washington have taken on Ukraine. Quote, while the U.S. has many vital national interests, DeSantis writes, securing our borders, addressing the crisis of readiness within our military, achieving energy security and independence, and checking the economic, cultural, and military power of the Chinese Communist Party, becoming further entangled in a territorial dispute between Ukraine and Russia is not one of them. Territorial dispute, Lynn. Is this where the Republicans want to take their stand? Well, it, it, the answer is no, and the party's divided. But here's what's interesting. If DeSantis just wanted to say we have other places to spend our money, well, then put that out as a policy proposal and go from there. But to mischaracterize and misinform people that that war where people are being killed and bombarded and invaded is a, to minimize it as a mere territorial dispute is a reason why what Tucker Carlson does in his, uh, in his, public commentary on his show on why it is so troublesome. This is not a territorial dispute. This is an invasion. And if DeSantis doesn't want to support it, just say so. But don't rewrite and don't, not even rewriting, uh, don't pretend it's something it's not. And uh, in this case, uh, as I mentioned earlier, Republican senators we're not hesitant to stand up and say, uh-uh, no, no, that's not who we are, um, despite Kevin McCarthy having said maybe the sa- almost the same thing as DeSantis. Here's, a, for example, uh, Senator Lindsey Graham, again, a big Trump supporter, has already endorsed Trump for 2024, uh, saying uh, DeSantis is just dead wrong. I just think that's a misunderstanding of the situation. Uh, this is not a territorial conflict. This war of aggression. I think Governor Florida has been a great governor, but uh, in my opinion, if you don't get Ukraine right, this is a chance to stop Putin before it gets to be a bigger war. So, Gabe, does this show that DeSantis is maybe not ready for prime time? Well, I mean, he's agreeing with Trump, right? Like, let's not pretend that this is a that this is a huge well, debate true. at the top yeah. of the Republican uh, presidential field. It's definitely that's true right. that you had a number right. of prominent senators and a number of people on the Hill on the Republican side who were horrified by what DeSantis had to say. Um, but the reality is that the two leading people, the two leading candidates uh, on the Republican primary field, even if DeSantis hasn't announced his candidacy, uh, essentially agree on this and essentially say the United States should not be sending so much money to Ukraine. Um, this, I think, is a massive concern, not only for uh, Democrats, not only for people all over Europe, um, not only for people in what used to be the mainstream of the Republican Party, um, but but even you know within the Republican primary field, if we really want to talk about it in those terms, um, who is going to be the person who's going to step up and say, actually, uh, you know, the Republican Party of even two or three years ago or five years ago, maybe, uh, you know, would never say anything like this. It, this is, you know, yet another example of how much that party has transformed over the last few years. And that's a Trump thing. Um, but, you know, there are obvious divides in this party. I think it's an important thing to remember that this is not being treated or, or to consider this is not being treated as an existential divide in the party. You know, there's not a prominent Republican uh, leader standing up and trying to uh, argue the, the the alternative. You know, Kevin McCarthy's not standing up there arguing the alternative. Mitch McConnell, yes, he's saying it, but he's not in a position right now, either health-wise or politically, 
um, to be the leading voice on this. So you essentially have the two loudest voices in the Republican Party articulating that. Uh, you know, Biden's actually, if we're going to, again, if we want to talk about this in pure political terms, um, Biden seems pretty happy with that because the polling of the country does suggest that, that that most Americans are happy to continue supporting Ukraine um, and not to minimize that war. But but as Lynn said, you know the the Tucker Carlsons of the world are certainly spinning this a different way, and that is a very influential voice for a very large and probably growing segment of the party, especially as we turn to an election year. Hey, may I jump in here with with another yes. layer here? I also think that uh, DeSantos, at some level, may be willing to get criticized for how he said it, but I think how he said it is a dog whistle to people and he knows what he's doing. I'm putting it out there. It's, it's not that he's naive or uninformed mm-hmm. or doesn't know the role of NATO and European defense and, and, and our security commitments to our allies. Uh, there are some, you know, there's a wing within the Republican faction, the Marjorie Taylor Greene wing where they are questioning stronger uh, aid to Ukraine. And this drumbeat might become louder, you know, as as uh, Republicans unfold how they want to approach the, the budget. So so it's not as devastating, I think, to a candidacy as it would appear uh, on, on, on the front. I, I think, you know, we're, we got a lot of this is a big onion that we're peeling away the layers <laughs> on on this one. Yeah. Yeah, Lynn's totally right. I mean, if you're the governor of Florida, no one's forcing you to answer this question. He doesn't take questions from reporters in the first place. He chose to give a statement to Tucker Carlson because he wanted us to be having this debate. That tells you all you need to know. Okay. Uh, So, Jason, I'm going to tee you up for maybe the easiest uh, (laughs) dissent thing. (laughs) Um, What are we to make of Donald Trump? I just love this story. Filing an ethics complaint against (laughs) Ron DeSantis saying it is unethical for him to be in Iowa when he hasn't yet announced as president. Well, it's it's good to know that that this is the real Donald Trump because that's what he does, right? He sues people, he files complaints, you know, he he does this sort of thing. Um, of course, it's it's silly. This seems to be a burr under Trump's saddle, you know, about like you know, officially or unofficially having a campaign. He's he's whined about that in in the past, you know that you know. I think saying at one point he's like, well, I can't say it officially, you know, as if you know it's sort of singling him out. But I mean, if if this uh, were to be something that. Uh, uh, regulators who who are, are not you know the, the FEC is is not exactly an activist uh, hard hard ass uh, law enforcement <laughs> uh, you know part of the bureaucracy at this point uh, they they uh, they don't really take a lot of of things like this uh, with with any kind of briskness and you know honestly like th- this would uh, probably devastate the economy of Iowa if uh, if there had to be declared <laughs> candidates uh, uh, to v- visit well, only declared candidates because I mean we we have all all through all all four of us on this call have been to Iowa with undeclared candidates wandering around <laughs> pretending like they like deep fried Twinkies at the Iowa State Fair. Right, you know Trump makes it sound like this is practicing politics without a license. You know, <laughs> under under the penal code of section. Four paragraph ten, uh, with with punishment up to and including four years in uh, in office. Yeah. If convicted. 
Yeah, a, f- a lawsuit filed by Mr. Ethics himself, whom we know, right? Uh, <laughs> all right, boy, a lot more to talk about. We got to take a quick, quick break here, and then we'll be back with uh, today's panel. Lynn Sweet from Chicago Sun Times, Gabe De Benedetti from New York Magazine, and Jason Dick from CQ Roll Call. Quick break, and we'll get back and get to the rest of the news of the week. And today's roundtable on the Bill Press Pod is brought to you by the Laborers International Union of North America, or LIUNA, as they call themselves, under Terry O'Sullivan, proud Irishman on this uh, St. Patrick's Day. You know, Terry's going to be celebrating today. Uh, the good members, men and women of the Laborers Union, are very active in the construction field, more jobs than ever, more construction going on than ever, thanks to the Infrastructure Act, also in the energy field building everything from old-fashioned pipelines to solar panels. And a lot of the members of the uh, Labor's Union are also involved in the healthcare industry. So we salute the members of the Labor's Union, thank them for their good work rebuilding America, and thank them especially for their support of the Bill Press Pod. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs. A gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs. Now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. And we're back with today's roundtable here on the Bill Press Pod. Uh, our guest on the roundtable today, Lynn Swede, is columnist and Washington Bureau Chief for the Chicago Sun-Times. Jason Dick, editor-in-chief of CQ Roll Call. Gabe DiBenedetti, national correspondent for New York Magazine. So uh, let's just accept the fact that none of us are, uh, I don't believe, uh, economists or financial experts, but did we uh, survive what or escape what could have been a colossal financial collapse this week with the uh, banking crisis? Lynn, start us off. Well, individual depositors will survive. I mean, the, the message has been getting out that your deposits up to 250000 are safe. And by the way, if you have two names on the account, you have double the, uh, the insurance. But it doesn't mean 
that were out of the water. You know, the banking stocks still have uh, these losses that they have taken in in the last few days. And we don't know. I think the word is infection or contagion. The, the market did bounce back some yesterday. And yeah. we'll see if it's over. If it is, we will be lucky that this is a one-week crisis. But this crisis also showed how fragile parts of the banking system we thought was bedrock is. And right. that may have an impact lasting more than this uh, shakeup that we've seen if indeed things settle down after this week. People, you know, there are some people, though, who actually lost money, not the depositors, people that had the paper uh, from this institution. So, there, you know, it's not like nobody was hurt, but the message for our listeners is, you have nothing to worry about if you have your your money in these federally insured accounts. So, Gabe, this is a test for the Biden administration. How'd they do? Well, uh, by all accounts, pretty good. I mean, there was a lot of hand-wringing in Silicon Valley in particular because this was a bank, Silicon Valley Bank, that um, catered heavily to uh, venture capitalists and startups. There's a lot of hand-wringing over the weekend, especially on uh Twitter, uh, saying, "Oh my God, where is the government? They have to step in." Um, there was an assumption that they were good, that the government was going to broker a deal wherein a larger bank would step in and buy Silicon Valley Bank and remove the risk from the situation. But actually, they didn't do that. They basically just stepped in and said, uh, "You know, there's not uh, there's not a buyer, but we're just going to make sure that all of the liabilities are paid, or rather, all of the accounts are paid." Um, yeah, so that was a pretty good uh, first step. I think the bigger question, as Lynn was alluding to, is whether there is a uh, broader sense of malaise in the market, whether people now trust the banking system more broadly. Um, so far, the government has been fairly straightforward in how it's acting on this, um, been very forthcoming about its plans. Um, it does not seem that we are in the, you know, it doesn't feel like like a chain of uh, events, anything like you know, previous financial crises, um, and it's very important that we note Silicon Valley Bank was structurally nowhere near as central to the government or to the um, uh, financial system as, for example, Lehman Brothers or Bear Stearns or anything like that. So let's not pretend right. that this is a you know earthquake. It does raise some serious questions about um, about faith <laughs> in the system, but that's all it is for right now. For right, right. now. Uh, yeah, the banks uh, infected were the banks that were not <clears throat> were not big enough not to fail, right? Um, so, Jason, again, Republicans uh, were uh, not sure God, how do they respond to this, right? Um, and it looked like they decided, well, the problem that they go to what is now the go-to place for Republicans, uh, this bank failed, the Silicon Valley Bank, because it was woke. Here is James Comer from Kentucky, who's now chair of the Oversight Committee. And then we see now coming out that uh, they were one of the most woke banks in uh, their inv their quest for uh, the ESG type uh, type policy you know, and investing. You know, this could be a trend. Yeah, this is a trend. Blaming everything on woke. Jason. Yeah, yeah, and I, you know, one one of the things that uh, is is great about working at a place like CQ Roll Call is uh, I work with people who read proxy statements and and things like that for fun, <laughs> and so uh, our deputy editor Peter Cohn he he took a look at SVB's uh, proxy statement about their board and so forth to see if there was anything to this that they're the super woke you know blue bank blue bank bailout I think is you know been bandied around too. Uh, Ninety one percent of their board is independent. Forty five percent are women. There's one 
black person, one LGBTQ person, and two veterans. So it's not exactly you know some sort of uh, you know uh, you know woke capital capital of woke uh, sort of situation. They wanted to make money just like everybody else. It sounds like you know from the analysis of of what went wrong is that they just practice bad banking in general uh, yeah. in, in, in buying treasuries at the same time that they were also backing venture capitalists. So uh, this was, uh, you know, but again, that's not going to prevent the, you know, people like Comer and DeSantis also, you know, weighed in on this of, of just sort of bringing out the woke card. I feel like at, at a certain point, this is going to become like Hunter Biden's laptop, where you say it and people's eyes just glaze over because it, it, <laughs> they've used it so often, it doesn't mean anything anymore. Oh, I did. May I? I disagree. I think they're onto something, and that's why they use it. This is going. See, this issue of woke is percolating both from the bottom up and the top down, and that's why this is such a potent political issue. We have school board elections. Some of them are going on around the Chicago area, where, where some of the groups who are alleging someone is woke. By the way, I would. It's a thought experiment. We all may have different definitions, by the way, of what exactly woke is. Uh, but this is this is a one word. It's like a, a slogan that has power, like defund the police, where even like-minded people may not agree what it means. So I, I think there's something to it, and we're, we're a bit far from eyes glazing over on it. Yeah, but Lynn, does anybody—I I have not met anyone yet— who can define what woke means. That's the beauty of it, Bill. That's the point. It means something. So so you're not the audience for for it, for the impact that I think this word has. And and we're seeing it manifesting itself. This is this is what we need to study to understand this. Gabe, I know you want to jump in. Yeah, I just want to I mean, I don't I don't think anyone here is like fully wrong. I do think that Lynn has a point that this is definitely percolating in the particularly in the conservative world right now, because they do feel that this is an elaboration of a culture war that they've been trying to figure out the best way to fight for the last few years. I think, you know, just look at uh, 2022 midterm elections, the panic over CRT, which you never hear about anymore. But that was that cycles version of that, uh, where it was hard to define, even though there is a definition of it. Or cancel culture, right? I mean, sure, they come sure. up with these but phrases is- and throw them out there and ride them for six months or so. And there is definite uh, evidence that people, particularly in this case, you know, they're worried about, like Lynn was saying, school boards, uh, you know, there's a lot of worry, particularly in suburban areas, that this is going to be the 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 um, culture war that elections are fought over. Republicans obviously think that this is a magic bullet right now. You know, CRT was not a magic bullet in the midterms because actual substantive issues were being fought over um, that that ended up, you know, swamping that that concern. Um, but it is obviously the case that Republicans do think that they're onto something here. I think the question that Jason brought up was a good one, which is average voters, average swing voters. Is this going to be the thing that's actually going to animate them? TBD. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, I want to raise one other issue, which I don't think got as much attention as it should this week, and that is twenty years, almost to the day after the Iraq War started. The Senate this week voted 68 to 27 to break any filibuster and to vote on ending the authorization for the use of military force, uh, which has been used, of course, in Afghanistan and then in Iraq. Um, This is a BFD, J. 
Jason, it seems to me, uh, that 19 Republicans actually voted. This was George Bush's policy, right? Um, this is a big deal, isn't it? Yes, yeah, it is. And and it's it's a, I think it's an example too of the power of a few people to persevere uh, over this. You know, Tim Kaine has has gone through so many dance partners <clears throat> to try to get this uh, you know on on the floor and to get support for it. Uh, and he's just never quite given up, you know, on on reaching out to people. And you know, in the in Senate Foreign Relations Committee, he got you know, Todd Young and Rand Paul to vote for this. Uh, so, you know, uh, one guy, a, a Marine, uh, you know, or a, a military veteran, the other guy, you know, the, a libertarian who, who does, you know, does not want us in, you know, abroad and in, in uh, foreign conflicts and so forth, all kind of going to make sure that this is, you know, stays in the public eye. Now, it's an open question about how hard, you know, Kevin McCarthy might try to get this onto the floor. But the fact that, that, you know, Kane and, and his supporters have been able to kind of keep moving on this, keep pushing on it. It was once, you know, a fringe issue. And then all of a sudden, as you said, Bill, you know, it's got 68, uh, you know, supporters overall. Uh, and, and again, it, it, there's nothing, it, it's almost like you can't really take a whole lot uh, for granted in the Senate with so many people uh, out right now. You know, you've got, True. you know, John John Fetterman and Dianne Feinstein who are, uh, you know, recuperating. Uh, Mitch McConnell's not, not there right now. He's also recuperating from his fall. I mean, it's, you know, going in and getting that kind of support, it, it, it sort of, it seems like it came out of nowhere, but it's, it's the year, it's the result of years of cultivating relationships and, and agreement on this. And Gabe, it also shows uh, that the Republican Party has changed, the point you made earlier, right? I think that this is, a, yeah, certainly the Republican Party has changed, but this is also not just a question about Senate wrangling. It's a, you know, it's, it's a massive culture shift in this country. The, the, you know, we have, multiple generations now that have been uh, really brought up in the shadow of of these of the Iraq war or or having it uh, shape their view of the world the Republican Party has changed but so have Democrats I mean remember 2003 feels like an extremely long time ago but the um, you know the the political world of then, uh, yeah, it looks nothing like it does now. And even a few years ago, talking to folks about, you know, Kane uh, Kane ran into a lot of issues, not just in the Senate, but around the around the country, trying to talk to folks about ending the AUMF. And and you know, we're in a world now where everyone agrees. Not everyone, many people agree. It's time to move on from that era of foreign policy. Right, and that open license, if you will, to declare war, go to war anywhere, anytime. All right, Lynn. So um, I want to end with and give you a chance. To let us know, April 4 is the big runoff in Chicago. Um, what the hell happened to Lori Lightfoot, and how do you rate the chances between Paul Vallis and Brandon Johnson? Well, well, I'll get to that. First, let me give you the news of the day uh, that uh, Congressman Chewy Garcia, who lost yes. his bid uh, to become mayor on February 28th, he's going to endorse Brandon Johnson this morning. Yesterday, Senator Sanders endorsed Brandon Johnson, and the day before that, or a few days before that, Senator Elizabeth Warren endorsed Johnson. So this means that there's significant movement to try to unify Chicago's progressive community. Uh, that had some division because Chewy Garcia and Brandon Johnson, backed by the Chicago Teachers Union, was both in the race. So uh, if your question is, why did Lori Lightfoot lose? Partly it was because of a low black turnout. She won the wards. I don't know who's going to win. I, I uh, have to 
think that there's more information that's going to come out about the two candidates. Paul Vallis is a more known quantity. Brandon Johnson is a far more unknown quantity, uh, even though he's a Cook County board member. He is also an employee of the Teachers Union, and it's the uh, Chicago Teachers Union and its national affiliate that have poured in millions of dollars to make his Mm -hmm. candidacy viable. But he has something going on that Paul Vallis does not, and that he has a more, far more grassroots support and foot soldiers, partly because the Chicago Teachers Union knows how to organize, and this organizing yep. ability translates very well into this political campaign he has. That's why he was able, in a sense, to sneak up from behind and uh, overwhelm Chuy Garcia, who had, there was a thought that he was the progressive champion but uh, Johnson out-organized him. Yeah, yeah, a very, very important race, and we will all be watching again that runoff on, on April 4. So great look back at the, most of the news of the week, and we thank a big thanks to Jason Dick, Gabe Benedetti, and Lynn Sweet. But we won't let you go without uh, finding out of all the things that we've covered. There's always one story, whether it's we're working on it or not, that gets our attention, stops us in our tracks, and says, oh, my God, or it makes you laugh or cry. Gabe to Benedetti, start us off. Your favorite story of the week. Okay, I'm going to be a little bit of a homer uh, this week, so apologies in <laughs> advance. My favorite story this week happened yesterday when uh, the Cinderella Princeton Tigers, uh, my alma mater, <laughs> beat Arizona in the first round of the NCAA men's basketball oh. tournament. An Arizona team that, uh, by the way, President Joe Biden yes. wrongly said would be winning the whole tournament. Um, but specifically, I do want to be sort of serious for one 19th of a second and shout out the coverage of uh, the undergraduate uh, student reporters of the Daily Princetonian, which full disclosure, I'm a board member of that paper. Um, but they have had quite a week, uh, started the week by reporting a story that a senior on campus was arrested for uh, storming the Capitol on January 6th, ended the week by covering one of the biggest sporting moments in the college's history. Uh, so heroic work from some student journalists who deserve a good long weekend. Uh, and thank you for bringing March Madness into the podcast. We'd be remiss if we... <laughs> That's what we, I'm here for. If we ended without the, speaking about that. Uh, Lynn Sweet, what captured your attention? Well, to go to March Madness quickly first, Barack Obama continued his tradition of putting yes. out his brackets, and he's picking Duke. Mm-hmm. So that seems a very, uh, given Duke's power and how they did last year, almost made it, uh, it seems it seems a reasonable choice. But my story of the week is the Mike Pence story at the gridiron because I was in the room when it happened. And it was a big news story. And the people who were there uh, were the ones who reported it because the gridiron does not allow uh, the, this uh, speech to be televised or audio recorded. So for that is for publication. So that's my big story of the week. So did he, what was the reception of the crowd? I've heard various reports that he did or did not get a standing ovation. Uh, he, here's the thing. I was, because I was in the show, I was uh, backstage. Oh. I, you know, they have very good sound to hear it. <laughs> So when he ended it, I did not see it. I heard those okay. uh, reports too. So, yeah, okay. but, but here's Bill, the point: it was well yeah. received. 
it yes, was yeah. well received Jason. overall. Yeah, very, very much. I, and I was, uh, I, I was a guest uh, of uh, uh, of a friend, Finley Lewis, who's also at, at CQ Roll Call. And um, and and the, it, Lynn's absolutely right. It was well received. A few people did get up. It wasn't the, the full. Uh, you know, room of, of 600 or so. Uh, but it was one of these moments where everything sort of turned on a dime. People were laughing, you know, really into the, you know, some of his, he, he had some pretty good lines yeah. uh, earlier. And then when he got serious and, and delivered, you know, the, the Trump and January 6th stuff, it, you know, you could hear the, almost hear the room straighten up uh, <laughs> and people start to tap on their phones. Yeah. Uh, oh. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and a few people got up, uh, but it was, yeah. it was very well received. Okay, and your favorite story, Jason? Uh, my, mine's a little weird. Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll avoid the March Madness because, of course, I'm an uh, Arizona alum. Uh, <laughs> um, but congratulations, Gabe. Um, no, there. Yikes, sorry in, in about the, that. That's okay. That's okay. We, we've got plenty. There's there's plenty of uh, stuff to coast on at Arizona. <laughs> um, but uh, there, there's this great story uh, in in the metro section of the Post this week about uh, Farney's. Uh, pens, uh, which is a pen shop in DC, oh, yes. across oh, yes. from the Willard. It's yes. So it's this great, uh, you know, sort of feature about. Uh, the people who are are shopping there, you know, some of the the losses that they've had in the last year. Uh, some, some people who worked there died during the pandemic, but the the business is sort of picking up both online uh, and among younger people who are fascinated by these, uh, you know, uh, by pens. And my, one of my favorite parts of this story too is that. Uh, uh, the the author quotes David Baker, executive director of the Writing Instrument Manufacturers Association, <laughs> and there was just there's nothing more DC than somebody who represents a trade group for pens uh, in in Washington. So it's it's a it's a fun story. I must say, I've walked by that store a thousand times. I've never gone in it. But after reading that story and hearing you talk about it, I'll stop by the next time I'm in that neighborhood. So I have to say, my favorite story of the week, I just cannot believe this. It just shows when you run for president, man, you got to be ready for everything. Ron DeSantis now is hit with the latest scandal. And the scandal is that former staffers report that in March 2019, on a private airplane flying from Tallahassee to the District of Columbia, uh, Mike um, Ron DeSantis rather was served one of his favorite uh, foods, chocolate pudding, which he abruptly ate with three fingers. He wait. did not have a spoon. He didn't wait for a spoon. <laughs> he sucked it up with three fingers. Uh, this uh, thanks to the Daily Beast for this report. So, uh, boy, you are under the <laughs> this, this pudding gate, I guess they're going to call it, this scandal. Um, but it reminds me, the last time, right, in 2020, uh, Amy Klobuchar <laughs> <Yes>. reported <laughs> she was on a plane and she had a salad and nobody, there was no fork around. So she pulled a comb out of her hair and ate her salad with her comb. Um, boy. And Gabe, who was it that got in trouble for eating pizza with a fork? Right. Was that was it John Kerry? Was that oh Kerry had the cheese whiz, De Blasio had the pizza yes, in the fork. Yes. Oh, yeah, that, yeah. okay. I need help. Right. So, <laughs> so uh, the the fact of um, Ron DeSantis eating pudding with three fingers raises all kinds of questions. The number one of which is WTF. 
right? <laughs> we'll just <laughs> let's leave it at that. And thank you, panelists, again for a great look at the news of the week. Thank you to Lynn Sweet from the Chicago Sun Times. Thanks to Gabe DeBenedetti, New York Magazine. Thanks to Jason Dix, EQ Roll Call, and the Political Theater Podcast. And thanks to all of you for listening. Great to have you on board today. Have a great St. Patrick's Day, a great weekend. We'll be back on Tuesday with the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. We'll see you then.